Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for listening to the Jefferson County News for the week of November 3rd, 2022. My name is Gregory Haddock. For today's reading, we will be covering the following stories. Goldenite's brainstorm priorities from housing needs assessment. Major concerns include workforce housing, commuter counts, parking, by Corinne Westman for the Golden Transcript. A devilishly good time at Goulden High. Trick-or-treaters delight in school's annual haunts, by Corinne Westman of the Golden Transcript. Grand jury to investigate Christian Glass case. Fifth Judicial District Attorney presents officer-involved shooting case to a grand jury, by Olivia Jewell Love for the Arvada Press. Thousands flock to Trick or Treat Street. The annual Trick or Treating Bonanza in Old Town was a hit, by Riley Dunn for the Arvada Press. Next Gallery presents Surreal Jokes at Latest Exhibit, by Andrew Fraley for the Jeffco Transcript. Lakewood Apartment Fire Kills Two, Leaves Nine Injured by Andrew Fraley for the Jeffco Transcript and following up with various articles. Goldenite's Brainstorm Priorities from Housing Needs Assessment. Major concerns include workforce housing, commuter counts, parking by Corinne Westman. Housing in Golden is unrealistic for many, thanks to staggering home prices and rents. Land is limited and building anything is expensive. So, how should the City of Golden solve these issues and which strategies or aspects should it tackle first? These were among the questions community members discussed during an October 27th community meeting co-hosted by the City and the Golden United Housing Task Force. The city presented its findings and recommendations from its 2022 Housing Needs and Strategies Assessment and then had the 40-some attendees break into groups to discuss which aspects should be prioritized. Workforce housing was a major concern for several breakout groups. Along with protecting the city's current affordable units, building new ones, and ensuring lower-income households can live in Golden. The next steps officials explained to the meeting attendees include bringing these discussion points to Golden's new Affordable Housing Committee. City Council recently approved creating the committee and the city manager is assembling up to seven members who are either residents or have expertise in the subject. The members should be announced by November 7th, city staff confirmed. The committee will review the 2022 assessment and the community meetings discussion points and then will bring formal recommendations to city council in about six months. The 2022 assessment According to the 2022 Housing Needs and Strategies Assessment, the average home price in Golden has doubled since 2015, according to the study. For the first half of 2022, the average single-family home sold for $1 million, up from $533,000 in 2015. Rental units weren't much better off as the average monthly rent rose from $1,511 in 2015 to 1929 in 2021. Overall, the percentage of families and working-age people in Golden has declined since 2000. Middle and low-income households are being pushed out by exorbitant housing costs, and 95% of Golden's workforce lives outside the city. The number of 24 to 55-year-olds living in Golden has declined over the past two decades, while the number of 55-plus residents has more than doubled. The assessment recommended several steps for the City of Golden to help improve its situation, including creating an affordable housing committee, creating financial or other incentives to improve the feasibility of developing affordable units, and expediting the development 
review and permitting process. Community members feedback. During the October 27th meeting, several discussion groups struggled with the assessments breakdown of those who commute into Golden to work called in-commuters. About 95% of Golden's workforce are in-commuters, but the group groups noticed this applied to city limits. Thus, if someone lived in the Lookout Mountain or Pleasant View areas, which are outside city limits, and drove into Golden proper to work, Golden proper to work, they technically be in commuters. The groups wondered how the data would look from a more regional perspective. They also described challenging the assessment's implication that everyone should live where they work, saying some employees don't want to live in Golden, regardless of affordability. Having an economically diverse housing stock was another discussion point, with both officials and residents saying it's important that residents should be able to move locally as their incomes and other life factors change. Parking was another concern. While decreasing the number of parking spots for a given development might drive down costs, it would also exacerbate the city's current parking issues, some groups described. Overall, participants described being shocked by how expensive Golden's average home prices and rents are. One group noted how most of the front range was feeling a similar pinch and said Golden should work with surrounding cities and other entities to tackle these issues regionally. For more information, including the presentation during the October 27th meeting, visit guidinggolden.com. A devilishly good time at Golden High. Trick or Treaters Delight in School's Annual Haunt by Corinne Westman. As darkness fell across the land and the midnight hour was close at hand, ghosts, witches, devils, spider-men, minions, Mandalorians, and other creatures descended on Golden High School in search of treats. The GHS Student Council and other clubs and teams hosted the school's annual trick-or-treat street on October 28th, with hundreds of children and their parents braving the spooky passageways to collect bagfuls of candy. About 10 student groups, including Sources of Strength and Girls Global Outreach, hosted stations along the trick-or-treat street. Adam Mitchell, student council advisor, said the school has hosted the event for at least 12 years, although it's been suspended on a few occasions because of poor weather or pandemic restrictions. After the doors opened at 5 p.m. and families began streaming through, sophomore class president Noah Morgan said organizers were expecting about 1,000 visitors. Most come from local elementary schools, so future demons can get an idea of what clubs and teams the school has. The event also provides locals an opportunity to trick or treat safely indoors, as some might not have that opportunity on Halloween night. Plus, Morgan said it's a fun memory for local students to have at Golden High School even before they enroll. She said several of her friends remember participating in the trick or treat street as children. Among the local children surveying their future high school for the first time were five-year-old Cora and one-year-old May, both dressed as foxes. Dad Evan McFarlane brought his two children to their first GHS trick-or-treat street after they read about it in a city publication. He appreciated how it was on a night other than October 31st, so the family can still do traditional trick-or-treating on Halloween. He thanked all the GHS students for putting the event together, saying he and his daughters enjoyed seeing everyone's costumes and accumulating sweets. For as much fun as youngsters were having collecting candy, GHS students were having just as much fun passing it out. At the Girls Global Outreach Station, sophomores Angela Sanchez-Munoz and Presley Kirkpatrick dressed as Buds Lightyear and Woody from Toy Story respectively, were participating in their first trick-or-treat street. They were enjoying seeing all the visitors' costumes, especially fellow Toy Story characters. The two described signing up because they wanted to help the community and get into 
the Halloween spirit. Thousands flock to Trick or Treat Street. The annual trick-or-treating bonanza in Old Town was a hit by Riley Dunn. An estimated 3,000 trick-or-treaters came to Old Town, Arvada on October 28th to show off their Halloween costumes and fill their baskets with candy. So, so much candy. Businesses and local community groups handed out candy from storefronts and at tables. The entire Old Town Pedestrian Mall in Town Square was packed full with a variety of costumes, some of which included inflatable elements. Old Town Arvada Business Improvement District Director Joe Hinksler said he was thrilled with the turnout. It is always great to see people come out in such large numbers for any event in Old Town. Hinksler said, we pride ourselves on being the heart and soul of Arvada, and an event like Trick or Treat Street really demonstrates the role Old Town plays as a gathering place for the community to come and celebrate together. Grand Jury to Investigate Christian Glass Case Fifth Judicial District Attorney presents officer-involved shooting case to a grand jury. The Fifth Judicial District Attorney by Olivia Jewell Love. The Fifth Judicial District Attorney Heidi McCollum announced on October 26th that she will be presenting the officer-involved shooting of Christian Glass to the Fifth Judicial Grand Jury. The DA's office has been investigating the death of Boulder man Christian Glass that took place on June 10, 2022 in Silverplume. The DA's investigation has been in collaboration with the Colorado Bureau of Investigation and other state, local, and federal agencies. Quote, After a comprehensive investigation, I now intend to bring this matter to a grand jury, which, at my request, is scheduled to convene multiple times during the month of November said McCollum in a press release from the DA's office. McCollum continued that events like these must be properly investigated in order to seek justice. The shooting has spurred public outcry in Clear Creek County as members of the public call for police accountability. The purpose of the grand jury is to investigate matters brought before it and return charges in an indictment if evidence warrants. McCollum said once it is completed, she will share the findings with the community. Lakewood apartment fire kills two, leaves nine injured. At around 4 a.m. on October 31st, the Tiffany Square apartment building in Lakewood burned down, leaving two people dead and nine injured. According to Lakewood Police Department Public Information Officer John Romero. At least 14 units were damaged by the fire, said Romero, with the residents of all 32 units being displaced. Police are not releasing the names of the victims, but three of the injured needed to be transported to the hospital with others treated and released at the scene, Romero said. The cause of the fire is still under investigation, according to Romero. He also made the point that the department does not, quote, have full confirmation on any additional fatalities, if there are any as the police department and West Metro Fire Rescue are still searching the units in the building. When no home is affordable, where do you live? Local voices, Riders on the Range, Dave Marson. It's a common story. Candace McNatt of Durango in southern Colorado kept losing bidding wars to buy a house. She finally settled on a tiny home of just 350 square feet. McNatt works as an operating room nurse and is a single mother of two teenagers, one about to go to college. Though she landed on the home ownership ladder at one of its lower rungs, she's relieved. Quote, but this is not how I saw myself approaching the age of 40, she, she muses. 
The rent on her home lot is $650. Her mortgage, just $604. Combined, that's about half of what she had been paying to rent an apartment in Durango. These days, real estate prices in Durango, as in so many western towns, have outrun most workers' ability to buy or even rent modest digs. McNatt, for example, pay, makes $85,000 annually, which places her at over 90% of the area median income in Durango. A two-year-old study by Root Policy, a Denver consulting firm, showed that single- and two-parent households have begun leaving Durango and southwestern Colorado in droves. Replacing them are retirees and wealthy, non-working people. That means businesses struggle to find workers as 80% of people moving into La Plata County don't work in the region. According, adding to the housing crisis is the boom in short-term rentals compounded by second home owners snatching up houses once rented to students at the local Fort Lewis College. Fort Lewis has been scrambling for housing. Starting in 2019, demand for on-campus living skyrocketed, and this August, the College of 3,856 students placed 93 kids in hotel rooms. 30 more were quadruple bunked in off-campus off apartments. The town thrums with stories of scores of students living in cars and scouting for safe parking, meaning places where police won't roust them out. Others camp out on public lands. The city of Durango, population 19,400, has tried to help by limiting short-term rentals within city limits and hiring housing expert Eva Henson to figure out how to create workforce housing. At a Durango council meeting last month, Henson said that only 169 housing units are under construction, while a thousand more are planned. Finished units for the first nine months of 2022 totaled 59. Meanwhile, a Ballyhood Accessory Dwelling Unit, ADU, regulation, which would allow homeowners to add granny flats, fizzled. Just two were completed this year, and potential builders complained that restrictions remain tight. According to the Root Policy Study, southwestern Colorado's overall housing deficit is 2000 500 housing units. Quote, Every town is short on housing, agrees Nicole Killian, a community development director for the Durango Bedroom Community of Bayfield. Killian said developers plan to build 800 homes over the next decade, a 75% increase in housing units. What everyone can agree on is that the area's housing shortage began in Durango, the biggest and most attractive town, then radiated out to every other town within 50 miles. Durango has had a sales tax that funded parks and recreation, says Mayor Barbara Noseworthy. Now we need to redirect some of that money toward housing. But the council is divided, with some members favoring a free market approach. So far, the free market wants only million-dollar homes. McNatt tells the story of two clinical experts at the hospital, each making $160,000, who, quote, have looked for a house forever. And he's like, I refuse to pay $1 million for a house. In the end, they paid over $1 million and are now house poor. One result of the housing crunch, says Mayor Noseworthy, is finding people for essential jobs. We have difficulty getting math teachers. If you can't get a high school math teacher, who's going to live here? Meanwhile, one housing solution in Durango has been Chris Hall's Hermosa Orchards Village of 22 tiny owner-occupied homes, a gem of collegiality. Many of its residents commute to Purgatory Ski Area or Silverton seasonally, and given their small inside spaces, tend to congregate outside on their stoops. On November 8th, there is hope for affordable housing, thanks to Proposition 123 on the ballot. The measure would give grants and loans to local nonprofits to build workforce housing and provide mortgage assistance to people like McNatt. At the end of my interview with McNatt, she took me to meet a friend who lives in a storage unit. The box-like space was narrow, his sleeping bag on a foam pad, just be 
fitting between a snowblower and a leaf blower. He said he was glad he'd found it. Dave Marston is the publisher of Writers on the Range, writersontherange.org, an independent nonprofit dedicated to spurring lively conversation about the West. Local life, differences, and devotion during Chile's constitutional reform. Colorado-based Chilean siblings reflect on their experiences and opinions during recent constitutional process. By Nina Joss. On September 4th, Chileans across the world anxiously checked their social media feeds and WhatsApp group chats, wondering about the future of their country. Would Chile adopt a new constitution? The answer flashed across their phone screens that evening in an overwhelming referendum results. About 62% of the population of Chile voted to reject what would have been one of the most progressive constitutions in the world. In Santiago, supporters of the new constitution comforted each other in sadness, while those who opposed it waved celebratory flags in the streets. Meanwhile, Chileans in Colorado mourned and celebrated from over 5,000 miles away. Pame Bradford, who works in Fort Collins Public Schools, was happy voters rejected the draft. An Aurora-based artist named Adolfo Romero, on the other hand, said the results felt like a deep blow to his heart. Considering their opposing views one of the most, on one of the most pivotal referendums in Chile's democratic history, it may come as a surprise that Romero and Bradford are siblings. Although they grew up under the same roof, the two Colorado-based Chileans have different opinions on what will cure their country's ailments going forward. From Chile to Colorado When Romero was in high school and Bradford had recently finished, their family moved from Arica, a city in northern Chile, to the capital of Santiago. Attending high school in Santiago was politically active with politically active peers, was a formative experience for Romero. Although he does not identify with a particular party, he said his political beliefs are left-leaning. Bradford, on the other hand, was less interested in politics. She said she focused on, quote, things with discipline growing up, such as sports and martial arts. When she was 25 years old, Bradford moved to the U.S. It might be kind of cheesy, but I moved because I felt that I was going to find love here. She said I actually did find it. After traveling for a few years, she met her husband and settled down in his home state of Colorado. In 2008, her parents moved to the U.S. Romero followed suit in 2014 to be near his family. The Social Explosion On October 18, 2019, an increase in the Metro Fair sparked massive demonstrations in Santiago. Both Bradford and Romero watched from afar. This was the beginning of a nationwide socio-political movement referred to as the Estalio Social, or the Social Explosion. For months, protesters demanded changes in economic and social policies that had been in place since the country's military dictatorship, which ended in 1990. The Estallido was a frightening time for some Chileans. Bradford said she was concerned as portrait protesters burned metro stations and destroyed private property. I was really distraught. I mean, we were really connected to this country, and when you see bad things happening, it affects you here, she said. I know we could have come up with better ways to do it. The reasons might be good, but not the way it was presented. Romero, unlike his sister, said he was hopeful when the demonstrations began. After being involved in community movements for most of his life, it felt like his country was finally awakening to its problems. One of the conversations that I used to have with my friends was, damn, when are the people going to be awake? When are the people going to react to these conditions in this country? He said, finally, it happened in 2019. Although he wishes political change were achievable, through just talking, Romero said it's sometimes necessary for people to take to the streets. But Chileans who went to the streets were met with excessive force from police, according to the Human Rights Watch. From October 18th to November 20th in 2019, almost 9 
2,000 protesters and bystanders were injured at tw- and 26 people died, according to the organization. For Romero, the police response to the protest was the most tragic part of the situation. It was very sad to see how many people got injured by the police, he said. I felt very powerless. The Road to Referendum The demonstrations during the social movement of 2019-2020 covered a wide range of issues, including wages, social security, water rights, education, health care, environmental concerns, gender inequality, indigenous rights, and more. As the movement continued, protesters started turning their attention toward a document that could address all of these problems at once, the Constitution. That was the core of everything. That is the core that supports the model, that supports the entire system, Romero said. So when the protesters chose that point, it, to me, was finally the right pathway to get a change. Chile's current constitution was written in 1980 under military dictator Augusto Pinochet, who held power from 1973 until 1990. After ousting socialist President Day, President Salvador Allende, in a U.S.-supported coup d'etat, Pinochet implemented vast neoliberal economic reforms. Under Pinochet, the availability and affordability of health care, social security, education, and even water were largely driven by the free market. The 1980 Constitution, despite modern amendments, maintains a role for private sectors for these services. These neoliberal decisions bolstered Chile's economy, but did so at the expense of extensive human rights abuses during the dictatorship. More than 3,000 people were killed or disappeared under Pinochet's regime, and over 27,000 more were victims of torture, according to Chilean Commission reports. Still, some applaud the dictator for the economic growth during his reign. Others condemn his human rights abuses and point to his economic policies as the root of Chile's devastating inequality. About a month after the protests began, then-President Sebastián Piñera agreed to hold a nationwide referendum to vote on the possibility of rewriting the dictatorship-era constitution. On October 25, 2020, 78% of voting Chileans approved the decision to rewrite a new charter. Voters also determined that a convention of elected citizens would draft the new document. In a global first, the constitutional body was required to have gender parity. In addition, 17 seats were reserved for indigenous populations, according to the National Library of Congress of Chile. In May 2021, voters elected a constitutional convention made up of 67% independent candidates many of them part of left-leaning movements, according to the Universidad de Chile professor Claudia Heiss. The non-traditional makeup of the body gave some Chileans hope when the process began, but polls showed a decrease in voter confidence and in the convention as time went on. After one year of the convention's work, the draft faced its fate in a referendum in which all Chileans were required to vote. The earlier votes in the constitutional process had been voluntary. According to the Chilean Electoral Service, Chileans abroad voted to approve the draft, but the overall population overwhelmingly rejected it. Both Bradford and Romero would have had to travel to another state to vote, so neither was able to cast a ballot due to logistics. The draft. Quote, Chile is a social and democratic state of law, started the new constitutional draft. It is plurinacional, intercultural, regional, and ecological, end quote. The 388-article charter included universal health care and rights to education, housing, pensions, and water. Along with vast environmental protections, it implemented gender parity rules for governing bodies. It also restructured the the country's legislative model and established paralegal justice systems for indigenous groups. Supporters of the document praised its progressive character, while opponents stressed the far-reaching and unachievable nature of the Constitution's goals. Some opponents wanted to keep the 1980 version. Others said they desired a new Constitution, just not this one. In Bradford's opinion, the members of the convention tried to take on too many topics. 
I do agree with some changes for the environment and things like that, but I think this proposal was covering way too many things and it became unreliable. People realized that, she said. But Bradford's biggest concern about the new constitution was that it did not address what she sees as Chile's main issues. Specifically, Bradford said she was concerned about danger and crime in Chile, which she attributed to a lack of control over immigration. I still have all my extended family members in Chile, and I hear every day that they're suffering, and those real issues are not getting addressed, she said. She also opposed the idea of making the state plurinational, which means recognizing the coexistence of multiple national groups within a country. We are a united country there. I don't believe that we should start calling each other something different, she said. For Romero, identifying the country as such was one of the biggest strengths of the draft. He said it was important to recognize indigenous nations. Quote, when we talk about plurinacionalidad, we are talking about the recognition of their territory and their cultural autonomy and that they are asking for the right to organize themselves in some way, he said. For me, that's good. It's the minimum that can be offered after years of colonization. The minimum. Romero also applauded the draft's inclusion of rights to health care and education. The rights to health care exist in various countries, and it works well, Romero said. It's the same with the right to education. The people ignore it because they simply haven't lived that reality. Romero added that he thinks many people who voted against the new draft were influenced by misinformation campaigns about its contents. Bradford said she knew people who read the draft itself and still rejected it. Delightful differences. For Bradford, the new constitution was not the right move for Chile. But in Romero's eyes, there is still hope for a new constitution in the future. The process isn't over in Chile, he said. It's a battle that was lost, but the battle the people are going to continue fighting. Despite their differences, Romero and Bradford said they are close, adding their parents, younger sister, and extended family into the mix. They are surrounded by a wide range of political opinions. We tease each other. We laugh, but we know we're not going to change our views, and we don't want to change our views, Bradford said. We accept each other how we are, and we love each other regardless. She compared their political differences to other differences she and her siblings have, such as the ways they like to relax and their tastes in music. You put priorities in life and families, the first priority, love, love for your family, she said. According to Romero, his family's differences represent the diversity that should exist in a healthy society. If I expect that all my friends think exactly the same as me, it will be me who is the problem, he said. Even when an entire new constitution is on the line, he says differences are valuable. This is the base of a society, what society should be, he said. It's a plus when you have a difference. Editors note some sections of the story have been translated from Spanish. Parts that remain in Spanish are designated with italics. Blank Slate looks ahead with Summer on a Salt Flat. Coming attractions by Clark Reader. For many people, college leads to all kinds of new starts. For Tess Condren, Riley Dunn, and Emma Throton, their time at the University of Denver led to the formation of the indie rock trio Blank Slate, which just released its debut album, Summer on a Salt Flat. The group, which features Condrum on drums and keys, Dunn on guitar and bass, and Trofton on vocals fine-tuned the songs at gigs around Colorado and beyond, according to provided information. In anticipation of the album's release, Blank Slate answered some questions about their backstory, making a record and more. Interview edited for clarity and brevity. Tell me a little bit more about the genesis of Blank Slate. E.T. Tess moved her electric drum kit into Riley's room in this chaotic frat house setting that had been turned into a live space for transfer students. Riley obliged, and suddenly they were met with the realization that they needed a vocalist. 
They texted our Transfer Living Community group chat, and I presented them with my vocals. Then we found a storage closet in the basement and did covers, and over time started honing in on certain sound, and with much repetition. The Genesis. What was it like writing your debut album, R.D.? I found that in order to write these songs, I had to ignore the album concept a bit. I wrote them all completely differently and for the most part, completely irrespective of each other. There are some exceptions. Little Love and A Fragile Thing are intended to be twins of sorts. Creative nonfiction, if this is Monterey, and 2301 South High Street are essentially three parts of the same story. And Seacliff is a sister song to Westcliff, which we released in 2019. But they all had really unique writing processes, and the ones that are related grew closer as they developed. Where was the album recorded, and what was the process like? TC. The process, the writing process is so stripped down that it's hard to expect what the studio will do to a song. So it ends up kind of doing something different to every song. The album was recorded with Tyler Imbrogno of Eldrin at Daymoon Studios over the course of 14 months. I can't imagine a project that has ever been more exhausting and rewarding at the same time. RD. Performing in the studio brings a certain level of perfectionism, and it can be hard to stay loose and play with feel in there, which I think was an area where we all grew a lot throughout the process. I've loved honing our live sound as we wrote these songs. All the iterations feel like they bring a lot of different dimensions to each song. Does the album have a particular theme or idea that you wanted to explore over its tracks? E.T. It very much feels like the expanse of the album runs parallel to a lifespan. T.C. This album is designed to be relatable and an aspect of something that being relatable is about its ability to go into detail. This album feels like is it about a specific time in someone's life, but the details are different for every listener. R.D. I think there's an idea of changing the ground you're on and feeling mostly the same. All of the songs are set in really specific places, but the sentiment contained in them has common threads. All three members of Blank Slate identify as queer. Does releasing this album have any special meaning at a time when LGBTQ plus rights are under constant attack? E.T. A lot of representation for queer people in most scenes, including music, is very one-brand, linear, archetypal, so it always feels really exciting to plant new seeds of iterations of queerness and how that can exist. TC. The fact that queer bands these days don't need to exist only at queer spaces. We show up at a lot of heteronormative shows and don't really feel out of place. It's more of a broad reach compared to how it maybe used to be. And that feels like a really cool way to provide representation. What do you hope album listeners come away with? TC. I hope the album offers a comfort for people. The best thing ever that could come out of this album is if people create their own stories out of it that they can come back to and fill themselves in. Listen to the album, find upcoming performances and more at blankslateband.com. Author's note, Dunn is a journalist at Colorado Community Media Newspapers. Clark Reader's column on culture appears on a weekly basis. He can be reached at clarkwithane.reader at hotmail.com. Teachers across the metro area describe pay rates. Douglas County looks to voters for 9% bump. By Ellis Arnold. Lucy Squire just marked her 18th year as a teacher at Copper Mesa Elementary School in Douglas County. One of the things she has that many teachers here and around Colorado don't is a home. Squire looks at what Douglas County School District teachers earn and doubts she and her partner today could afford the same home. That's even considering her current salary as a veteran educator. When I started interviewing and looking as a brand new teacher, all of the school districts were so comparable with pay, said Squire, a third grade teacher. It didn't matter where you ended up because they were so similar. That was in 2004. Fast forward to today and differences in teacher pay across Denver Metro school districts are often stark. 
While teachers in many districts across the state say they are struggling to keep up, particularly amid rising inflation. In Douglas County, south of Denver, teachers say voters have an opportunity to help them. Squire and others are supporting ballot issue 5A on the November ballot to boost pay for teachers and other district staff. The district, quote, is the largest employer in the county and serves 64,000 students, quote, yet continues to lag behind in total funding and competitiveness and salary compared to other school districts. According to a summary of written comments in favor of the proposed property tax increase outlined on the ballot. While proponents say narrowing the pay gap will help with the district compete for and retain teachers, staff, and administrators, opponents worry about property taxes amid rising real estate prices. Douglas County real estate is expected to be reappraised upward in 2023. So property tax bills are expected to rise even if voters kill issue 5A. According to the comments against the proposal in Douglas County's voter information booklet. The Douglas County opponents' views in the voter guide also speculate that, quote, more money spent on education does not buy better education outcomes. Shannon Doring, an English teacher at Castleview High School who can't afford a house with her partner in the region, says if a district isn't paying teachers well, it can expect to keep them, and that affects the quality of education. Quote, there are certainly worst-paying districts in the state, but in regards to the area, I definitely say Douglas County is known as one of the worst-paying districts. Doring said, that's not a secret. Addressing a gap. Despite the political decisiveness on Douglas County School Board, its members unanimously supported asking voters for the proposed task increase. Krista Gilstrap, a Highlands Ranch parent, helped organize support for the proposal. Quote, we've got people who support the new board and people who don't support the new board coming together to get this done, said Gilstrap, adding that the issue has brought some Republicans and Democrats in the community together. Gilstrap, a lifelong registered Republican, drives around with paint on her minivan's back window, noting she's a conservative who backs the proposal. The need in Douglas County School District is so great, it justifies a tax increase, Gilstrap said. The impact of the tax increase would be $51 per year, about $1 per week for every $100,000 in the addressed value, assessed value of a home. For example, a home worth $500,000 in assessed value would pay $5 per week or $255 per year. Assessed value is the worth of a home for property tax purposes as determined by the county assessor's office. That translates to an estimated $60 million more in annual revenue for the district. Officials say the figure starts to close the pay gap with other school districts, including Cherry Creek in Arapahoe County. Douglas County teacher pay on average $57,900 is lower than nearby districts. Cherry Creek paid about $76,100. Littleton Public Schools, $68,700. Jefferson County Public Schools, $62,600. And Boulder Valley School District, $82,000. The Douglas County District's tax proposal comes close on the heels of a boost in pay for Jefferson County teachers. The Jeffco agreement in August raises the minimum salary to $50,000 and increases in salaries for various other pay grades and gives each educator a minimum of $3,000 more. Pay problem is a broader issue. Pay isn't just contentious among the Denver area school districts. It's a statewide issue, according to the nonprofit Colorado School Finance Project. We are one of, if not, the lowest in competitive teacher salaries compared to every other state, said Tracy Rainey, the project's executive director. Research zeroes in on what's known as wage penalty. It tracks how much less public school teachers earn in weekly wages relative to their college-educated peers who didn't become teachers. Data from the Washington, D.C.-based nonprofit Economic Policy Institute indicate that Colorado has the largest such gap 
in the nation. Teachers here earn, on average, 35.9% less than their college-educated non-teacher peers. Add to the equation that some school districts in Colorado collect more in taxes than others, and it means some struggle to be competitive in terms of pay, according to Rainey. Douglas County hasn't been as successful as other districts as passing funding proposals and elections, quote, so they don't have the additional local revenue and therefore will be on the lower side of pay, Rainey said. Not just complaining. During the Castleview High Education educator is in her fifth year of teaching. She said she doesn't want, quote, to be a millionaire. I didn't get into teaching to make a lot of money, Doring said. I want to be able to leave work and not have to think, hmm, am I going to have to get a second job in order to pay my rent, in order to buy a house, in order to start a family? She doesn't want to leave the district. If she does, it would be because of the relatively low pay. Doring makes less than $50,000 Per year. I love the kids I teach. It would really break my heart if I had to leave because of money, Doring said. The average teacher in the Douglas County School District is expected to get a 9% bump in pay if the tax proposal passes. Squire, the third grade teacher at Copper Mesa, said she took the year off when her first child was born but could not do so when she had a second child because of income needs. A lot of my teacher colleagues tutor on the side as a way to make money. Squire said. Squire makes roughly $70,000 a year. She hasn't talked in specifics about how her pay compares with that of her friends in education in other Denver area districts, but they're aware they're of the sense there's a gap. I have friends in Jeffco, Cherry Creek, and Littleton. We just know that the joke is I work in Douglas County. It's just become laughable, Squire said. Doring has felt defensive about pay at times. She wants people to know that teachers aren't just complaining about pay. This isn't like some issue over curriculum. This isn't an issue over admin or a decision a teacher made. This is my living, Doring said. When you can't afford to live someplace, something's got to give, she said. A new chapter, Coming to Terms with a Gruesome Legacy, by Alexis Kikowin, Jeremy Moore, Mark Harden. Rocky Mountain PBS. A book once revered by white people and put on proud display at a Denver seminary later became an object of such shame and bitterness that it has taken its custodians decades to come to terms with it. The book is a history of Christianity in Latin, published in 1752. At some point, the volume acquired a grotesque cover, the flayed, tanned skin of a murdered Native American. For 129 years, the book has been kept at the Iliff School of Theology, affiliated with the United Methodist Church, a school that describes itself as being, quote, recognized nationally and internationally for its emphasis on peace, justice, and ethics. Its alumni include ministers, chaplains, scholars, and political leaders across the country. In 1893, a Methodist minister presented the book as a gift to the then-new school on the University of Denver campus. For decades, the book was displayed in a glass case at the entrance, the entrance to Iliff's library. It's deeply ironic that they would cover that book of Christian history with human skin taken from a murder victim, an Indian. George Tink Tinker, Professor Emeritus of American Indian Cultures at Iliff and a citizen of the Osage Nation Wasazashi told Rocky Mountain PBS. Tinker has written extensively about the book, its origins, and its significance. He said it was long regarded as, quote, a trophy, as a sacred relic of triumph over Indians. Nearly 50 years ago, facing pressure from students and finally seeing the book as an embarrassment rather than a treasure, Iliff officials had the cover of human skin removed and took the book off display. School leaders at the time wanted to silence the controversy and swore to secrecy those with knowledge of the situation. Decades later, Iliff began to see things differently. It was time for us to tell the truth about this book, said Thomas Wolfe, the current school president and CEO. Now the book and its gruesome history have spawned a gathering of cultures to share perspectives and search for a path forward. 
It's a journey that participants hope will lead to accountability and understanding. Across the country, other colleges, as well as museums and federal agencies, are coming to terms with Native American remains and cultural artifacts they have long possessed, recently including Yale University, the University of California, Berkeley, and the University of Kansas. A 1990 law, the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, NAGPRA, lays out the process for the return of Native American remains and objects taken from tribal lands. The National Park Service estimates that the remains of at least 108,000 Native people are in the hands of non-tribal institutions, including colleges and museums. The Denver Museum of Nature and Science, which has a large collection of Native American artifacts in its anthropology collections, says, quote, it has returned numerous cultural items through NAGPRA. The museum has consulted on all known Native American human remains in its collections and only curates human remains for which informed consent has been given by the individual or her, his family, kin, or community. A murder and a defiled body. Different stories about the Eilif book cover's origins have been told over the centuries. According to Tinker and Loring Abeta, an Eilif adjunct lecturer who is Tinker's wife, the cover came from the defiled body of a member of the Lenape group, people, original inhabitants of parts of what is now the Northeast United States. In 1779, they wrote recently, A white farmer who was occupying Lenape land in western Virginia killed two native men, quote, for the crime of walking across what he considered his own property. They refute early accounts that describe the killing as a result of a heroic fight with, quote, a warrior. One of the Lenape men had, quote, his skin flayed so that it could be some sort of trophy or treasure. Abeta told Rocky Mountain PBS, And then there was some decision that made that it was a great idea to bind the book in the skin of this Lenape victim. Held by the farmer's family, the book, quote, evidently was enough of a treasure that it was shown around and bragged about, she said. Eventually, the book wound up in the hands of a Methodist minister, R.M. Barnes, who had moved to Colorado. Barnes donated the book to Iliff in 1893, then in its second year. For the next eight decades, Eilif had the book on display in a glass case. In 1934, article about the book in the Rocky Mountain News described its cover as, quote, finer than the finest vellum, and praised the skin's, quote, smoothness and texture equal to the finest parchment. The article called the volume, quote, one of the most treasured relics in the library of the Eilif School of Theology, and, quote, a priceless vestment for the teachings of brotherly love. In 1974, the book drew another kind of attention from some ILF students who protested the display. They also reached out to the local American Indian Movement representatives. Jerry Campbell, then an assistant librarian at ILF and later president of Claremont School of Theology in Claremont Lincoln University, said he was given the task of severing the cover from the book with a blade so the skin could be turned over to the American Indian Movement, AIM, for burial on native land. Quote, I remember thinking, good grief, this is the skin of a human being, Campbell told United Methodist News in an, in an October 2020 article. I just remember thinking, this is a terrible thing to have here and be kind of celebrating it. At the time, ILIF leaders decided to maintain silence about the book and its cover, asking AIM and other, others with knowledge of the situation to sign a non-disclosure agreement, quote, in order to protect ILIF in terms of its fundraising potential, Tinker said. That's immoral and unethical, Tinker said of the secrecy. Christians have two words for it that we don't have in any Indian language. It was evil and it was sinful. The school has stored the coverless book out of public view ever since. Nobody will talk to you about this. Tinker said he learned of the book in 1986, shortly after joining the ILIF faculty. One of my colleagues pulled me aside and said, nobody will talk to you about this, but you need to know that this happened at ILIF, he said. Tinker said he almost left 
Iliff after hearing about the book because it was so disturbing to an American Indian. Instead of leaving, he said, I waited until everybody was in church on Sunday, and I went back into the building, and I smudged every nook and cranny I could. The school's policy of secrecy about the book and its sordid past changed after Wolf, a United Methodist pastor and elder, arrived as Iliff president in 2013. Wolf said he had learned about the book years before coming to Iliff, hearing a talk about it at a 1996 United Methodist conference in Denver. Just the idea of a book covered with the skin of a Native American person was profoundly disturbing, Wolf told Rocky Mountain PBS. You don't have to be affiliated with the school to feel that. It's part of a long history of violation of Native peoples in this country. He said the book represents, quote, not just one institution's lack of understanding, but also the whole nature of Christian domination that misplaced and murdered millions of Native people. The cover may be gone, Tinker said, but that, quote, doesn't remove entirely the spirit of that Lenape murder victim from the book itself. Something needs to happen to that book. But Iliff shouldn't do anything without talking to Lenape people. Tinker also advocated that Iliff look beyond the disposition of the book itself. I really wanted to change the behavior of my white relatives, he said, making things right for our ancestor. And so, Tinker and Wolf asked Lenape elders to come to Denver and offer guidance. That led to two days of meetings in April that Rocky Mountain PBS was invited to observe. The elders also examined our book. Quote, our big question is, what do we do with the book? Wolf said, and the understanding was we are preparing ourselves to be guided. Among those on hand for the meetings was Curtis Zuniga, a co-founder of the Lenape Center, an arts and cultural organization, and cultural director and a former chief of the Delaware tribe. Delaware is a another name for the Lenape people. Quote, it's important that the Isle of School at least listen to us and try to take steps in a new and better direction, Zuniga told Rocky Mountain PBS. He said Iliff must recognize that by accepting the book in 1893 and knowing its origins, they became complicit in the colonial domination and the racism uh, against natives. Zuniga said that the spiritual force of the murdered Lenape man whose skin covered Iliff's book remained centuries after his death. Quote, the Lenape way of life was one of understanding that not only do we as humans have a living spirit, but that all of creation has a living spirit, Zuniga said. The spirit endures beyond just the physical life. Another elder at the meetings was Patricia Noah, who said she reacted with, quote, disgust and sadness and heartache when Zuniga told her about the Iliff book. I think that murdered man's spirit got caught between the physical world and the spiritual world, she said. He couldn't get to them to the spiritual world because part of him was put on that book. Part of his spirit stayed there and was stuck there. Out of their Denver meetings, the Lenape delegation presented a, quote, statement of guidance and direction, calling on ILIF to take a number of steps. Those steps include creating a display or memorial about the book, establishing, quote, an interpretive center to educate Indians and non-Indians on truths of American history as it pertains to the indigenous nations, funding an endowed professorship filled by an American Indian activist scholar, and enhancing its curriculum. Quote, at such time as it is requested by the Lenape, the elders will take the possession of the book, the statement says. ILIF leaders formally accepted the Lenape's delegation recommendations and offered their own document outlining active steps the school will take to meet them. Another in-person meeting with the Lenape elders, elders is scheduled for April 2023 to review progress on the recommendations. Quote, the Board of Trustees and the leadership of ILIF School of Theology and their successors support and commit to a permanent relationship with the Lenape elders and their successors toward building a new history and relationship in full recognition of Iliff's history of possession of the book of Christian history covered in the skin of a Lenape man, the Iliff document says. For now, the book will stay at Iliff. Said Zuniga, the sense of response and commitment from Iliff will inform our and frame our attitude about taking possession of this book and making things right by that ancestor. 
Until the book is turned over, it, quote, will remain in a secure and respectful place within the president's office, the ILIF response document said. It's clear that the process discussed in the talks will not be concluded overnight and will need to be carried forward by future ILIF administrations. This is going to be a commitment that this generation is making for this institution going forward in time, Wolf said. Changing a worldview doesn't happen over a lifetime. Happens over a lifetime, but it doesn't happen until people start thinking a different way, Tinker said. That's what I want for Ilif and for all my Euro-Christian relatives. This story is from Rocky Mountain PBS, a nonprofit public broadcaster providing community stories across Colorado, over the air, and online. For more and to support Rocky Mountain PBS, visit rmpbs.org. Thank you for listening to the Jefferson County News. My name is Gregory Haddock. If you enjoyed this program, please register.